0: A little boy playing with cars. A little girl dressing up as a nurse or a doctor. All a perfectly normal and perfectly fun part of growing up. But what would you think if as they got older, as they, they moved up into their teenage years and late teenage years, that they kept doing those things The boys' friends were learning to drive, they were getting their first motors, but he was still just playing with toy cars. The girls' friends were were going off to university to train to be to be doctors or, or nurses. Some of them were getting engaged and would soon have babies of their own. But she was still dressing up and pretending. She was still playing with dolls. What would you think? You would think there was something badly wrong. What is a perfectly normal part of childhood becomes unhealthy and even disturbing if it's clung on to into adult years. And if you can keep that picture in mind, I think it helps us understand what's going on here in the second half of Acts chapter 6 and through into chapter 7. Stephen's speech in chapter 7 is a long one. He covers lots of Israel's history. There are many verses it would be tempting to pull out and preach a a whole sermon on. Lots of interesting things that we could discuss. Maybe we will at the Bible study on Wednesday. It's a chapter that, that is invaluable as an inspired commentary on the Old Testament. For example, how should we understand Moses killing the Egyptian? Well, well this is a pretty good place to go. But what's the point of, of this whole speech? Well, the point is that, that the Jews were trying to hold on to a model of something when, when, when actually the real thing was right in front of them. And that's what Stephen is trying to get across to them. Just as it would be abnormal if a 17-year-old boy wanted to play with a a toy car rather than drive a real one. The Jews here want to hold on to the outward form of their religion. And particularly the temple. When the very person who it all pointed to had come. The week that that I preached on the live stream I asked the question, what are the days in which we're living biblically speaking Uh, the answer that i gave is that we're living in a new era we're living in an era today that, that believers in the old testament could only look forward to with longing we're living in the day when the holy spirit has been poured out and the gospel is going to the nations of the earth it's an amazing time in which to be living But in this chapter Stephen comes face to face with people who simply don't want that to happen. They don't want a new era to dawn. And for all their talk about blasphemy, they are the ones who are actually trying to oppose God's purposes in the world. They are refusing to get with the program of what God is doing now that the Messiah has come, died, risen again and poured out his spirit. Stephen specifically calls them out in verse 51 for resisting God's purposes, for resisting the Holy Spirit. And as a result, he becomes the first Christian martyr. He's telling them that that now, now that Jesus has come, we have what the temple pointed to all along, Now, it is true that Stephen doesn't come out and say in so many words, Jesus replaces the temple. You know, if he'd come out and said that, then that would have been the end of his speech right away. It would have been brought to an abrupt halt. But I think that is an accurate summary of what he's saying. If we look at what he's accused of, and if we follow his reasoning... And if we look at the climax of his speech where he explicitly talks about the temple in verses 47 and 48. I think it's clear that he's arguing that in trying to hold on to the physical temple. The Jewish leaders are like grown men wanting to keep playing with toy cars when they have the opportunity to drive a real one. So that's a a long introduction but I I hope it helps show where we're going this morning. And we're going to look at it in more detail under three headings. We're going to see the accusation, the answer and the application. Uh, If you're visiting, my my headings don't normally all start with the same letter, but but they do today. So accusation, answer uh, and application. What does it mean to be a spirit filled Christian? Well, as we see again and again in the book of Acts, it means to speak about Jesus Christ. Yes, sometimes in Acts, those who are filled with the Spirit perform signs and wonders, as Stephen does in verse 8 of chapter 6. But the key mark of being Spirit-filled is speaking. There are people in the Bible who, who perform signs and wonders, but who aren't full of the Spirit. In verse 10 of chapter 6, "...the Jews can't withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which Stephen is speaking." And it is the speaking that gets him killed. Jesus and the early Christians, they they weren't killed for doing signs and wonders. But they were killed because of what they said. There are many parallels between the, the death of the Lord Jesus and the death of Stephen. That's not surprising. The servant is not greater than his master. Uh, And one of those parallels is that false witnesses are brought against both. Uh, Verse 13 of of chapter 6. For the false witnesses brought against Stephen. It reminds us doesn't it of Matthew 26.59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus. That they might put him to death. And in both cases... This is interesting. In both cases, the accusations that the false witnesses make are to do with the temple. Matthew tells us at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And what do we read here in verse 13? They set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. What is this holy place? Well, it's clearly the temple. So Stephen stands accused of speaking against the temple. But maybe you're thinking, well, why pay too much heed to what the accusations were? We're we're specifically told that these were false witnesses. But clearly in the case of Jesus, the false witnesses were picking up something that Jesus had actually said and and twisting it. Jesus hadn't said that he was able to destroy the physical temple and rebuild it in three days. Of course he he could, but that's not what what he said he was going to do. But he had said destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But as John tells us in his gospel, he was speaking about the temple of his body. And if with Jesus the false witnesses were taking something that he had actually said and twisting it a little, well then, I think we can assume that the same thing was happening with Stephen. At the very least, he's quoting these words of Jesus. Perhaps filling out some of the details as Peter and Paul would do later. That when Jesus called his body a temple it wasn't in the way that someone today might say my body is a temple in the sense that they're going to look after it but that his body was a temple because the presence of God on earth was now centred on him rather than in the stone temple. Why is Jesus' body a temple? Because the presence of God is now centred on him rather than on the stone temple. Perhaps Stephen pointed out how, how even one of, of the names that had that been prophesied of Jesus, Emmanuel, it means God with us. And so to know God's presence on earth, people didn't need to go to the temple anymore because they could go to Jesus. And perhaps Stephen had also explained, uh, as Paul would do in Ephesians 5, that the church is Jesus' body. Uh, And maybe you combine that with what Peter said in 1 Peter 2, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So Jesus' Jesus' body is a temple. Uh, Jesus' body is also the church. Believers are being built up like living stones into a spiritual house. So yes, Jesus didn't say that he would physically destroy the temple. Stephen wouldn't have said that either. But because Jesus had now come, the temple was no longer necessary. It was obsolete. Its days were numbered. We, we, we buy things today. We buy washing machines and so on and they have they have built in obsolescence that means the the manufacturers only build them to last a certain amount of years not like the the 25 years that things used to last for it's more like five years well in a sense that the temple had built in obsolescence because it was it was only meant to be there until Jesus came and from from that point on God's presence would be experienced not in a building but when his people met together in Jesus name whether that is in a building uh, as we are this morning whether it's out in the fields uh, wherever to use words from Hebrews 10 the temple and the sacrifices that took place in it were a shadow of the good things to come and now those good things have come so the temple is no longer needed When the daylight comes, the shadows disappear. And maybe the reason that Stephen doesn't correct the false accusations is because they amount to the same thing. Jesus wasn't going to physically do away with the temple, but he didn't need to because its role in the lives of God's people was going to fade away. And isn't that demonstrated so clearly when Jesus dies on the cross? In the temple only the high priest could come into the holiest part, into the very presence of God and only once a year. But when Jesus dies the the curtain in the temple is torn in two from, from top to bottom. Telling us that the way into God's presence is now open to anyone who will come to him through Jesus. And that means that the whole Jewish religious machinery is no longer needed. As the book of Hebrews particularly helps spell out. But this idea enrages the Jews in chapter 6 verse 9 because their temple in Jerusalem was at the very centre of their identity. The fact that they had a temple made them different from those around them. But Stephen's teaching is a threat to that. And as we start chapter 7, it's the high priest who's asking, are these things so? And it's significant that the high priest is mentioned. Because if Stephen is right, then of course he'll feel threatened. Because if the temple and its priesthood had really been brought to an end, then his role was no longer necessary. He was out of a job. And in fact, by putting on his high priestly garments, he would be like the teenager playing, dressing up when his friends are entering the world of work. These garments that the high priest wore, they had been commanded by God. They were so symbolic, but they were pointing forward to the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And now he's come. The high priest's uniform was no longer needed. The coming of Jesus had effectively given the high priest his P45 and Stephen is now personally delivering that to him but the high priest doesn't want to go quietly. There's a story that's told about Queen Victoria. I don't know if it's true or not but the story is that one of her chaplains was preaching on the second coming and she said to him, I so wish that the Lord Jesus would return in my lifetime. And when he asked her why, she said, so that I could lay my crown at his feet. She wanted to lay her crown at the feet of the Lord Jesus. But with the high priest here and with the Jewish religious leadership, it's the opposite. Jesus has come the first time, but rather than cast their crowns at his feet, they want to hold on to them. They want to hold on to their honour, their status, their position. To use a modern expression, they are on the wrong side of history. These traditionalists are on the wrong side of history, just as progressives are today. And why are they? Well, because history is his story. And you can either get with the program of of what God is doing in Christ or fight against it. And tragically, the Jewish leadership chose to fight against it. And so firstly this morning we have the accusation Yes false witnesses have been wheeled in but at the heart of it all is what Stephen has been saying or implying about the temple and their religious customs This chapter in the the big story of Acts it it is the gospel beginning to move out to the nations of the earth because it has been rejected by the Jewish authorities And it's not that the that the the temple and the Jewish customs weren't important in their time, but they were only ever meant to be signposts. They weren't meant to be the destination. But tragically, the the Jews of this day were, were treating the signposts as if they were the final destination. So firstly, this morning, the accusation. Secondly, the answer. The answer. Stephen's speech here is one of the things that has led to the remark that for a book called Acts a lot of it is sermons and speeches rather than Acts and with such a long 53 word speech it would be easy to miss the wood for the trees but there are a couple of themes running through it that we want to notice remember what the accusations were about they're about the temple And what is the very first thing that Stephen says? He says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. And what's he saying? Well, he's saying that God's presence isn't limited to the temple. In fact, it's not even limited to the promised land because God appeared to Abraham outside of either then he moves to Joseph and we're told about Joseph in verse 9 the patriarchs jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt but God was with him as we've been thinking about in our evening services what is the very thing the temple was for? why do you go to the temple? well you go to the temple to be in God's presence but here Stephen is reminding them that God was with Joseph in Egypt Egypt is mentioned six times in verses 9 through 15. In Egypt, in Egypt, into Egypt, into Egypt. And yet in Egypt, God was there. In Egypt, God was with Joseph. So having jumped from Abraham to, to Joseph, uh, Stephen now jumps to Moses. What's, what's the most significant event in Moses' life? It's a burning bush. The angel appears to him in the wilderness. The angel of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the Lord says to him, verse 33, The place where you are standing is holy ground. And what is that? Well that is temple language too. Holy ground. And yet this holy ground is in the wilderness. There is no temple. There is no tabernacle. And yet God has appeared. To Moses. Moses has stood on holy ground. So, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, God appears to each one of them. Each of them knows what it is to stand in the presence of God without ever standing within the temple. In Moses' day, the tabernacle was built according to the pattern that God showed them on the mountain. That movable temple like tent Uh, the instructions for which you've maybe read if you if you've made it into the book of exodus and the decorations of that tabernacle it, it can be quite tough going to read about but but the decorations they point back to the garden of eden which in a sense was a temple because it was a place where god dwelt with man but because of our sin mankind was cast out of god's presence but the tabernacle and then the temple pointed to the fact that God had made a way back through the sacrifices that were offered there or rather not through those sacrifices but through the one who those sacrifices pointed to Jesus Christ as someone has put it this special tent or tabernacle was a prophecy of how God wished to dwell in the world the whole world through Christ so Adam and Eve being put out of Eden, they're put out of God's presence, but the tabernacle and then the temple, it's God saying, I want to dwell with man. Then in for, verse 47, in, in Solomon's day, the temple was built in Jerusalem. But even on day one, at the very dedication of the temple, Solomon had realised that God couldn't be limited to a building Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. As I say, something very similar in words that Stephen quotes here in verse 49 in the climax of his historical summary. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things Do you see Stephen's argument the whole way through his speech? God's presence has never been limited to the temple. It obviously wasn't limited to the temple before the temple was built. But even since the building of the temple, it had never been limited to there. So that's the first strand of Stephen's answer. Pointing out that God's presence had never been limited to the temple. The Jews should have been ready for the fact that the temple was only ever meant to be temporary. Why? Because it pointed to a greater reality. So that is the first strand of Stephen's argument. But I think there's more to it than that. Not just the the negative, but also the positive. Because he also... I think it's pointing us to the new temple that God is building. This dawning of a new era with the pouring out of the Spirit, it had both a negative aspect and a positive one. Uh, Negatively, it meant the end of the the whole Jewish religious structure. Uh, The kernel kernel would remain, but the shell would be stripped away. Not that's not of the negative side, but the positive side, it means that the Holy Spirit has come and the gospel is going to all the nations. And uh, in light of that, the fact that Stephen quotes from Isaiah chapter 66 is very significant. Uh, I don't have any references on, on your sheet today, but, but, but if, if you're writing down one uh, to look at later, Isaiah 66 is really important. Uh, Stephen quotes part of it here, but it's worth reading the whole thing. When you see an Old Testament passage being quoted in the New Testament, it should bring to mind not just the specific verses that are being quoted, but the whole section they come from. You know, they they couldn't say, well, we'll look at Isaiah chapter 66. They didn't have those chapter numbers, but, but they would quote a bit of it, which was to point us to the whole thing. And so in verses 49 and 50, here in Acts 7, Stephen quotes from the start of Isaiah 66, And what are those verses telling us? Well, they're telling us that we need to think bigger than buildings. We need to think bigger than buildings. But how much bigger? Well, if you go on further in that final chapter of Isaiah, you'll read about the new temple that God is building. But it's not one made of stone. God says later on in that same chapter, Isaiah 66, 18, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And is that not exactly what has just happened in the day of Pentecost? All nations and tongues are being gathered. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. And where did they see God's glory? Well, not in a building, not in a building, but in Jesus Christ and through his church Uh, The people of God. Isaiah 66 goes on. And they shall bring your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. And some of them I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. I've just said that the high priest is getting his P45. So so how how can we have a prophecy here that God uh, of the nations would make priests and Levites? Well, the important thing to understand here is that this is God using temple language. It doesn't mean that in this new era, God is literally going to make people into priests and Levites. No, the book of Hebrews is clear that with the coming of Jesus as the final priest, there is no need for any other priests anymore. They have been superseded. So to say that God will make people of all nations into priests and Levites is simply a a picture language way of saying that people from all nations will serve in his church and that's what we should look for in our day of a church made up of people from all nations reflecting the, the makeup of the communities that we're part of do you not know says Paul in First Corinthians 3 that you you plural you as God's people you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you Yes, the physical temple was going to pass away, but in its place, God was constructing what the physical temple had always pointed to, a new building made of living stones indwelt by God's Spirit. And so that's Stephen Lancer. Jesus destroyed the temple? Not at all. Instead, the Lord Jesus was building the true and ultimate temple as he poured out his Spirit and sent the gospel to the nations, just as God had promised for centuries. So we've seen the accusation, we've seen the answer. Thirdly and finally, the application. The application. I want to make two applications from all we've looked at today. Firstly, today's temple is made of people, not bricks, and our hope is heaven. Today's temple is made of people, not bricks, and our great hope is heaven. Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ today look forward to the physical rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And they do so because they think that the Bible leads us to expect that. Now that's not something I want to directly address today. But I hope you can see the relevance of some of the things that we've looked at today to that question with the coming of Jesus the physical temple faded from the view of the early Christians even before it was destroyed by the Romans because it wasn't needed anymore because it was all fulfilled in Christ and so we're not looking for the rebuilding of a physical temple in Jerusalem today. Yes we absolutely believe that Jesus Christ the righteous branch of Zacharias 6 will build the temple of the Lord The true son of David who will build God's temple is ultimately not Solomon but Jesus Christ. But he will do it as Zachariah says, not by might nor by power but by my spirit. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And what's another word for a dwelling place for God? It's a temple, a a temple. Or to quote 1 Corinthians 3 again, where Paul says it explicitly, he said to Christian believers, do you not know that you are God's temple? When I was interviewed for the BBC programme in the summer, it came about through a guy, Mark Thompson. Mark and I had never met, but we'd, we'd known of each other for a few years. He features on a lot of Ulster Scots TV programs and over the last few years he's understandably been asked quite a lot about the proposed bridge between uh, Northern Ireland and Scotland and when he was asked if he was excited about the prospect he would always reply the people are the bridge, the people are the bridge. We don't need the physical structure because the people are the bridge. And I think in the light of of the New Testament, we should be able to say the same thing if if we're asked about the prospect of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. The people are the temple. The people are the temple. And the prophecies of a future rebuilt temple are, are ultimately picture language of heaven itself. Where there is no temple because wherever people are in heaven they are in the presence of God. So there is no temple because in a sense the whole place is a temple. As John writes I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And don't we get a glimpse of that here as Stephen dies In verse 56 he sees heaven opened and there is no veil. He sees into the very presence of God and there's no curtain to to separate him from it. And that's not because he's a martyr. The way into heaven isn't open to him like this because he's a martyr but simply because he is a, a Christian. And so that same way is open to any of us who will come through faith in Jesus Christ. And so today's temple is made of people, not bricks, not just Jewish people, but people of all the nations of the earth. And it's significant that that is where the book of Acts will go next. The old temple is effectively declared obsolete here in chapter 7. And so in chapter 8, the focus turns to the nations of the world, out of which God will build his new temple, along with the Jews. As Christ is proclaimed in Samaria by Philip, as the Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith and then in chapter 9 as Saul is converted and Jesus tells Ananias that he, Saul, Paul will carry my name before the Gentiles and as those Gentiles along with believing Jews are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit every human temple is built with hands those are words Stephen uses in verse 48 here. But our ultimate hope is in a temple made without hands. As Hebrews 9, 11 puts it, the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Or a few verses later, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now, to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So, The first of our two points of application, today's temple is made of of people, not bricks, and our great hope is heaven. And the second point of application, just to mention in a few words as we close, is that the goal is worship. The goal is worship, and it always has been. What did God tell Abraham? Verses 6 and 7 here. He told them that the people would be enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. But that God would judge the nation that they serve. And after that they will come and worship me in this place. The goal is worship. Worship is what we were created for. And the Jewish religious establishment had lost that sense. They were big on religion. They could talk to you all day about Church. But worship had become a mere formality. The Judaism of Jesus' day had become legalistic. As Gerhardus Voss once said, Legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but it does not adore. Legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but it does not adore. In fact, those who Stephen was speaking to didn't even obey outwardly no doubt they did but not inwardly and that inward corruption had shown itself by murdering Jesus verse 52 the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it and just before we we point the finger at them we could end up there a lot easier than we might think Are we more comfortable talking about the the external aspects of religion? Are we more comfortable talking about church or talking about Jesus? If we talk about the sermon later today, will it be in terms of what we learnt about him? Will we use what we heard this morning and what we'll hear tonight to fuel our our worship of Father, Son and Holy Spirit? Will it, it give us things to praise him for in the week ahead? The goal is worship. Worship of the Saviour who Stephen followed. The Saviour who Stephen preached like and who died like. Uh, And we close this morning with Stephen's final words. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold this sin against them. How could that happen? Through God ignoring their sin? No. Only through God putting their sin to Jesus' account instead of theirs. And that is our only hope this morning as well. That God wouldn't hold our sin against us either. Because on the cross he held it against his only son. Amen. Well let's turn as we close to a psalm. uh, Through which for a thousand years before Jesus came. God had been telling his people that he didn't need their sacrifices Psalm fifty, Psalm fifty, page one hundred. Psalm fifty page one hundred, singing verses one to four, and then over to the last verse, verse twenty-one. The Psalm starts with a majestic vision of God. The mighty God the Lord has spoken and did call the earth from rising of the sun to where it has its fall. And because God is so majestic, he'll go on to tell them in verses 8 and 9 that he doesn't need their sacrifices because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The psalm is also an indictment on God's people. He's calling them to account just as Stephen does in Acts 7. And then in the final verse of the psalm, we're reminded that the goal is worship when the externals are stripped away and all that remains is the heart he honors me who brings the sacrifice of praise the reason God called Abraham out of Mesopotamia was worship because that's the reason he created Abraham and that is the reason he created you so psalm 51 to 4 and then verse 21 let's praise God from our hearts we stand to sing praise